Yo, have you heard about the McDuffie murder and revolt of 1980? Well, let's talk about that shit then. to be strong we had to be strong we had to be strong hey we had to be strong 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 hey we had to what's up what's up what's up my beautiful peoples and welcome back to another installment here at the bistro a safe space where we focus on stories of and from forgotten communities and their connections to each other I'm your host, Lo, and today we're con- we're continuing. Excuse me, we're continuing the series on the Liberty City Race Rebellion. So again, this week's topic is about race. So be prepared. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> Anyways, this week we're continuing our Liberty City Race Rebellion series. This is part two. And this week is about the McDuffie murder and revolt of 1980. So let's go ahead and recap part one of Liberty City Race Rebellion. Because we have a list of bullshit that led up to the events that occurred in 1968. So we have Jim Crow, the KKK child, systemic racist police policies. Say that five times fast, child. Urban development due to the interstate highway infrastructure that displaced black residents into densely populated areas. We have outside white ownership in black communities. We have Cuban defectors from Castro's communist Cuba getting better treatment and benefits than local black residents. We have the Vietnam War. We also have the baby boomer consumer drug use boom and the beginning of the national law and order policies. This is also an election year, bevy of different movements, assassinations, the RNC, DNC, slum conditions, unemployment, overpopulation, Child, you name it, it's, it was all there that led up to the race rebellion of 1968. <sighs> Child, I think it's about that time again, y'all. So go ahead, grab your vice of choice, and let's spill the tea on how whiteness once again rears his chicken breast looking ass head here at the bistro. Picture this, more than 11 years after a major rebellion against the mistreatment by their local government, a community has experienced an even greater decline as relations continue to deteriorate with local officials. 
Unemployment is double the national average. Median household income is scraping the poverty line. And the handling of immigration between two different cultures shows the contradiction of policy and further confirming the fears of said community and their feelings of unwantedness. There's also a continued police violence without justice and accountability. This was the case for Liberty City and other black communities and residents throughout Miami and Dade County after the 1968 race rebellion. <sighs> so y'all, nothing had changed. I just want to say, um, for real, nothing had changed. Things had actually gotten worse. Uh, and this really led to one of the deadliest race revolts in American history in 1980. Uh, and this was after the acquittal of white police officers by an all-white jury for the murder of a former U.S. Marine and a local black insurance agent. Uh, his name is Arthur McDuffie. So come along. Let's talk about the events that led up to this tragedy next. Y'all, y'all know how the perception that America's North was a beacon of racial liberation and economic freedom versus the South's overt racist policies in society. Guess what? That extended to Northern Florida versus Southern Florida. So Northern Florida was this rural representation of conservatism, of Jim Crow racist, racist segregationist South, uh, forced labor, uh, similar to slavery back in the day. Like, for example, for example, uh, George Wallace, and remember him from part one? Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. That him, him? Yeah, he's seen as a folk-like hero in these areas of Northern Florida. So, of course, just understand, black people in Northern Florida did not feel comfortable. That was not a safe place for them. There was constant violence on top of all of this. I mean, who? Pick a nigga. Picnic, pick a nigga. They used to, they used to have picnics for lynching of black people in Northern Florida. I mean, throughout Florida, throughout the South, uh, but... And when we're talking about specifically Florida, the northern parts of Florida, the more rural area of Florida and less swampy area of Florida. Yeah. Yeah. White people used to have picnics for lynchings. Come on now. Come on now. So southern Florida was seen as a destination for Northern uh, Florida black people seeking refuge from that racial brutality, from all of the injustices um, and for a place to seek economic liberation. Southern Florida was also viewed as a haven for northern retirees, um, and it was becoming an urban liberal center of tourism and international commerce. So northern Florida blacks started to migrate to southern Florida because of that perception. Uh, and they were sadly awakened when they understood that it was more of the same except less rural and way more swampy, child. <laughs> way, way, way harder. Way harder. 
I have another family example because uh, a lot of my dad's family was actually from that panhandle in northern Florida, um, in Tallahassee. And my dad, as a kid, and his family moved to southern Florida because of those reasons. What northern Florida blacks failed to understand was the effects that the urban development and the interstate highway infrastructure had on black communities in south Florida. Uh, they added to the already overpopulated black neighborhoods in Miami, specifically Liberty City and Overtown with their migration to Southern Florida. Also, they were not even aware of the Cuban immigrants beginning to take jobs that local black residents had have been doing for decades. Side note. OK, y'all listen to this in 1980, the median income for black folk in Liberty City Overtown and the Grove, Coconut Grove, or we just call it the Grove. Uh, but these were all the big black communities in the city was $5,600. The federal poverty index figure was $5,500. You see, when I said earlier, when <laughs> the median income, family household income was just barely scraping poverty line. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Come on now. And and remember last episode in which the city gave black residents only $80,000 in loans versus the million dollars they gave to Cuban residents and immigrants? Mini side note, y'all. Okay, so that 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 figure, that that $80,000 in loan versus million dollars given to to Cuban residents and and immigrants. That overall total only 8.6% went to black residents and black entrepreneurs. I'm going to say that again. Only 8.6% of that overall amount was given out to black residents between the two communities. So, y'all, over the decade later, it's been over a decade since the 1968 rebellion, Things have progressively gotten worse. Black businesses were basically still unable to get loans from the city banks. So this meant that there weren't too many black owned businesses throughout South Florida. That myth of South Florida, specifically Miami, being a center for aspiring business and black business entrepreneurs was over. That bubble had burst and the country's immigration policies were starting to show its true colors. We'll talk more about those policies after the break. Now, as we mentioned earlier, things in the next decade remain more the same for Liberty City and black residents in Miami after 1968. Uh, this was also true when it came to immigration. The Cuban community, along with other Latin communities in the city, continued to thrive throughout the area. Uh, you have the emergence of Kendall and Hialeah and also the further growth of Little Havana. So Hialeah became um, its own city in Miami-Dade County in the 90s. And quick side note, 
Uh, Hialeah is the fifth largest city in Florida with 93% of its population of Hispanic Latin descent. Now we have the emergence of another group of immigrants in the area, Haitians. Another quick side note, y'all, we're totally going to do a few episodes at some point discussing the history of France, uh, the U.S., and the U.K., and how they all screwed over Haiti and continue to do so, child. Anyways, Black Miamians already knew that their interests weren't being served at any level of government. The U.S. immigration policies for Cubans versus Haitians was another blatant example, y'all. About 30,000 political refugees arrived from Haiti between 1978 and 1980. In the early months of 1980 alone, approximately 20,000 Cubans defected to South Florida. Now, imagine the strain that can put on a local economy. That's over 50,000 new residents in the city in such a short amount of time. But unlike what seemed like the red carpet treatment the white Cubans were given, Haitians were met with true second-class citizenship. No work permits were given to Haitian men or women. No food stamps were available at the time. And few, if any, medical facilities were open to Haitians. In 1979, the Haitian Refugee Center and eight Haitian individuals filed a class lawsuit against the Immigration and Neutralization Service that Black refugees were systematically denied due process of law upon entering the United States. Haitians who were deported from the U.S. were persecuted, placed in prison, and tortured when they returned to Haiti. There was sworn testimony by several Haitian refugees who had experienced these heinous acts by the island's secret police force. But y'all already knew, y'all already knew, the U.S. government did not give a damn about all of that and gaslit the shit out of the lawsuit. They said that the refugees were fleeing economic hardship and therefore were not eligible for asylum. Black Miamians knew exactly what this was. Black folk in general knew what this was. Just another tally mark for the U.S. government not giving a damn about dark bodies. In April 1980, the administering board of the Dade County Community Action Agency approved a resolution requesting President Jimmy Carter to grant political asylum to all Haitians in South Florida. Florida's NAACP president, Charles Cherry, criticized President Carter for using the black vote to win, but ignoring pleas and the needs of black Americans and the treatment of Haitian refugees. Let's see. So you have discriminatory policies, systemic economic racism. We're missing something, right? We're missing something, right? Oh, yes. The police system. The almighty American police system. We'll discuss the McDuffie murder, trial and rebellion after the break. So we have North Florida blacks moving to South Florida because of the perception of less racist society and economic liberation. We also have the beginning of the cocaine trade, bringing in a surplus of $7 billion to the city, 
uh, with the drug lords infiltrating Miami PD and specifically the homicide department. We also have several landmark Florida cases involving the black community and the police that should have went to court, but under state attorney Janet Reno, that never happened. And trust, oh, trust, we'll be hearing more about Janet Reno in a future episode on this podcast. Trust me, because there's a lot about that bitch, child, a lot, child. And guess what, people? It's another election year. This is 1980. Jimmy Carter is seeking re-election in the midst of a deep recession. He also basically ignored everything that had been going on in Miami. There's still unrest around the country. And Miami has its first Latin mayor trying to navigate all of the issues going on in the city while also attempting to make Miami into a trade portal with South America and the hub for Latin American trade in North America. We also see the country experience the biggest spike of immigration this century. And we also see the dichotomy between America's treatment of these different groups of immigrants. Another side note, y'all. More on what has been occurring nationally around this time. We had American hostages being held at the embassy in Tehran, which is the capital of Iran. And the Soviet Union had also invaded Afghanistan. So with all of this swirling around, it took an event of up to 15 cops beating an unarmed black man to death to ignite the flame of building tensions. Trigger warning. There's going to be some disturbing details provided. So please, please proceed with caution, folk, and make sure that you're in the right headspace to consume the information provided in this next section. On December 17th, 1979, Arthur McDuffie, a former U.S. Marine and a manager at a life insurance company, was beaten into a coma by a group of cops after a bizarre motorcycle chase through downtown. One officer cracked his skull with a flashlight. McDuffie died four days later in the hospital. But guys, that's not the story that the police officer involved in the case gave. They reported that the chase had ended in a motorcycle crash and that McDuffie passed away from injuries sustained in that crash. But that coroner's report said, nah, child, nah, y'all are lying. Prison, prison. But that's not what these officers received, unfortunately. On May 17th, 1980, an all-white jury in Tampa, Florida, acquitted four white police officers of murder. A reporter for the Miami Times, which is the black community's newspaper, said that the word McDuffie meant police brutality, white racism, and outrage with the system. It was taken as a personal insult by every single black person in Dade County, irrespective of socioeconomic class. So, y'all... There was a peaceful, nonviolent march that was occurring in downtown after the verdict. But silence was but the silence was broken when people started to chant, 
We want justice. Within minutes, a rebellion erupted in every major section of Black Miami. Liberty City, Overtown, Brownsville, The Grove, you name it. Every Black section, there was a rebellion over the next five days. Police attempted to stop the demonstration, but they were outnumbered. Huge sections of the warehouse and industrial district in Brownsville were burnt to all hell. But even though the rebellion was spontaneous, it was also strategic. The rebellion focused on destroying white and some Cuban-owned businesses, but several warehouses that employ large numbers of blacks remained untouched. Almost every black-owned business in Miami was spared. There was one small exception in which a small grocery store was burned by some white residents in retaliation to the black violence. Y'all know how officials and the media like to describe rebellions as irrational outbursts of the youth. Well, this definitely was not the case with this particular rebellion. Uh, There were people, black people of all ages and all socioeconomic backgrounds joining in. People were sick and tired of the unjust treatment and broken promises. The rebellion also spread quickly outside of Miami. There were events in Tampa and about 350 black students and faculty at HBCU, Florida A&M, and Tallahassee rallied in the campus amphitheater. In South Dade County communities, three white people planted a Ku Klux Klan-style burning cross in a black neighborhood, causing enraged black people to raid white-owned stores and toss bottles at white motorists driving through the black community of Richmond Heights. I want to provide some context regarding white motorists driving through the black communities because we discussed a little bit about this in the prior episode. But the remember how the major highways, especially I-95 and 395 and other highways um, were built in Miami? Um, In order to get to and on these highways, motorists usually have to drive through these black communities. So every day you literally have motorists, specifically white motorists, seeing the conditions of these black communities in the city. Okay, y'all, I'm about to get into more of the gory details of the rebellion. So this is the trigger warning for the next remaining minutes of the episode. After the verdict, three young white people drove through Liberty City, were dragged from their car and beaten to death. One Latino man accidentally struck an 11-year-old black girl and was mutilated. Some youth stopped an elderly Hispanic male and basically burned him alive. Whites cruised through Liberty City in pickup trucks targeting blacks for murder. They shot a black man standing outside of a bar and two other black men in similar fashion. Some white store owners used shotguns and pistols to drive out raiders. Some white people even hired themselves out for $100 a day to protect white-owned property in these black neighborhoods. Several black men were shot under suspicious circumstances by the police. Black looters that were arrested were segregated from white prisoners. 
and there were also rumors of National Guards providing guns to white property owners. So get this, guys. There was also a well-known police riot as officers destroyed 14 looters' cars and spray-painted looter, I am a cheap, no-good looter, and thief on these cars. In mock outrage, Miami mayor suspended four of the police officers in which angry white officers retaliated. Their mayor backed down from his suspension two days later. And y'all remember in episode one when national black leaders tried to come in at the last second and quote-unquote save the day? Child, they tried to do that again. Reverend Jesse Jackson had a well-publicized media event at Liberty City's Caleb Center. I used to do plays and math bowls there, y'all. And only 12 people showed up. Six of them were TV crew. They all knew that this was brewing and ignored it. Liberty City and black communities in Miami were forgotten. Day County was placed under strict curfew from 8 to 6 for several days. As the dust settled, Miami and the country started to understand the devastation that took place. 67 buildings were damaged, 24 of them completely gutted. Over 3,000 jobs were permanently lost and another 3,000 lost temporarily. Over 400 people were injured, many seriously. Over 1,250 people were arrested. Almost all were black men. And 18 people had died. 10 black people and 8 white Latin people. Concluding the worst race rebellion since the Chicago Rebellion of 1919. And believe it or not, people, this wouldn't be the last rebellion in Miami in the 80s. We'll discuss that and more in part three of the Liberty City Race Rebellion series. Last side note, guys, this episode could have easily been three plus hours. Uh, There's a lot of information that I could have gone more in depth with. Uh, So for you guys that want to learn more, please, please check out my references in the episode information box of the podcast. I'm your host, Lo Weaver, and thank you for stopping by the Bistro this week. Y'all stay safe in these streets. Until next time, deuces. Remember to follow the Bistro Pod on all platforms. Like, subscribe, and rate. Toodles! Toodles!